Hey, I'm Steve. We're going to talk about some stuff today. And one of the most common questions sometimes I get as a pastor is, what happens when I die? I mean, let's just think about that, Nick. If I killed you right now, what would happen to you? Um, I'd be pretty upset, first of all. No, you wouldn't, because you'd be dead. You wouldn't be upset. Well, I would be in heaven, obviously, Oh, and, then and be upset. And be upset. Okay, all right. And I would follow you around. You'd be hovering. You'd be a helicopter heaven uh, uh, sightseeing on my life because of that. But no, sometimes I get asked this question, what happens um, when I die? And it's a pretty serious question because it gets asked in a n- number of cases, especially when a loved one dies. So you can especially think for a parent who loses a child or a spouse who loses a uh, their mate, or, or you lose a parent, and you know those questions always funnel around in our minds. What, what's going to happen next? Or if uh, some, if one of us, you know, we knew that death was impending, one might be thinking, "What happens when we die?" And so theologians call this personal eschatology. So the word eschatology means a study of the end times or the future times. It's a Greek word, and when I say personal eschatology, it means what happens to us personally. So let me give you an example of this. So we could be talking about the order of events of the end times, like the tribulation period or the Antichrist and things like that. That's kind of the big picture eschatology. But personal eschatology applies to all of us because we all die and we all have questions about that. And so especially today as people are maybe afraid or they're thinking of COVID or they've lost people in their lives, they think about this. So when I answer the question, what happens when we die, a couple things that pop into my mind that I want to talk about today, and one is this word death. The Greek word means to be separated from, and sometimes we use that as we talk about the Bible because we can be dead to God. That means we're separated from God. So when I physically die, my soul is separated from my body. So that's how that word was used in the New Testament. It goes all the way back to Plato, actually, uh, for this Greek word that means a separation or death as well. So as soon if I die today, I would go immediately into the presence of God. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, uh, Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians. Paul also wrote in Philippians chapter 1, he's telling the Philippians, hey, I would really like to go see you guys. I'm just looking forward to that I get to reunite with you. But if I don't, it's good too because I go immediately to be with the Lord. So Paul had this very firm uh, knowledge that he would go into the presence of God as soon as as soon as he died. So that's the that's what happens when we die. I immediately go into the presence of God. So if I'm an unbeliever. I immediately go not to be in the presence of God. So that's the separation from God part. So an unbeliever is separated. Uh, I would here's how I usually phrase it: I'm separated from everything that's good, separated from the goodness of God. We see this in some parables in the New Testament where Jesus told the one about uh, Lazarus and the rich man, and uh, where where the the rich man is in agony, he says send Lazarus back, and and the parable says, well, that's not going to do any good. Your family still won't listen. But there's this separation from all that that is good. So what happens when we die? So we go into the presence of God, and then at a future time, we are resurrected physically. And I don't think people understand this. They think the end point is that I go and sit on a cloud and play a uh, a harp, a harp, right? 
or a violin or I'm just floating in Never Never Land. And that's that's not the picture people should have. And unfortunately, Christians have that picture, right, that it's going to be boring in heaven. And so I, I think we need to dispel that and debunk that a little bit. So when I die, I go into the presence of the Lord, and then in the future I get a new physical body. So the end game is my new physical body. That's why Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. And he said in the Gospel of John that everybody's going to be resurrected, some to something good, some to something not good. So everybody, believers and unbelievers, get a resurrected body. Unbelievers will be separated from God for eternity. Believers will be in the presence of God. So this physical body, my physical body, even if the resurrection is 10,000 years from now, I'm, it's going to come back to life. And I think we're going to recognize each other. I'm going to see you, Nick. You know, and I'm going to see, I'm going to recognize you. That's going to be incredible, right? In the future, I'm going to recognize my uh, my loved ones and and my kids and my wife and so forth. And I think that's a hope that we can look forward to as well. So the resurrected body is the final place, and then the final place this resurrected body will be living will not be on a cloud playing a harp. It's going to be on a new heaven, a new earth. So this 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 planet that we live on groans to be redeemed, and someday it will be redeemed, Romans chapter 8, by the way. And so I will be living in my physical body on a physical earth in the future with Jesus at the center of everything. And I think we're going to have purpose and meaning and meaning as we um, live out our lives in our physical body. So I think if you're a painter now, I think you're going to be a painter in the future. I'm a, I'm a pastor now. I'm a teacher. I'm not going to be needed anymore. Jesus is going to be there doing that. So there's going to be some other purpose for me, some other uh, meaningful design of my life uh, in the future. Some groups have some what I would call aberrant beliefs about what happens when I die. So one is that the soul is annihilated that my soul is going to cease to exist. And I don't think the New Testament teaches that whatsoever, that I'm annihilated as well. We are all made in the image of God. Our souls are not going to be annihilated. Some groups like the Jehovah Witnesses believe that when you die, your soul does not go in the presence of God, but it sleeps. So we would say, hey, in one sense, the body sleeps in the grave, but not the soul. But the other line of thinking is that the soul just kind of exists and hovers. I think that's bad news because I could be hovering six feet off the ground somewhere where I don't want to be. And uh, it's just plagued with problems. The soul doesn't sleep. It goes immediately into the presence of God. The book of Revelation, I'll give you an example. The souls of those who've been martyred on earth are singing praises to God. In, in the book of Revelation. So we don't go and sleep. We go immediately into the presence of God. So that's our future That's our future destiny. And we ought to look forward to that. But it's not our future destiny is not heaven on a cloud. It's in our new bodies on a new earth. That's good news. I think a guy named N.T. Wright has written about this extensively, uh, that our end game is the resurrected body and this new... I'm going to call it resurrected earth or the new the new earth. And I think that train of thought is exactly, exactly correct when it comes to personal eschatology. 
Another question I get asked sometimes is, is uh, well, what about, are we going to be judged in the future? You know, what's going to happen to us as far as some type of judgment? And I think it's helpful to have two different things in mind. First, there are two different judgments. One is the great white throne found in the book of Revelation, and unbelievers are judged at the great white throne. And the judgment there is, are you a believer or not? Is your name in the book of life? That That's that's the judgment there in the book of Revelation, chapter 20, 21. And so that's a judgment. Believers are going to face what we call the the judgment seat of Christ. And sometimes theologians call this the bema seat. So, Nick, the word bema is the Greek word for judgment, and that's the word used in the book of Romans when it talks about the judgment seat of Christ. So what's what's going to happen to me or you when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ? And because we're believers, and I think it's at that point that Jesus, uh, there's eternal rewards involved. Is the concept. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul talks about, hey, our good works are burned up like wood, hay, and straw if they're no good. Or some of our works are like gold and silver and jewels and will be rewarded. I'm not sure what that reward will be. I'm, I, I'm not talking about you're going to win the lottery or something like that. The reward may be as simple as well done, good and faithful servant. Or the reward might be some type of responsibility in the future, some type of service to, to Jesus. Uh, but we're going to be rewarded in some way. And actually, that's somewhat of a motivation to live for Jesus right now. I think the reason we live for Jesus right now is out of gratitude, but I think there's a another reason that's mentioned in the New Testament, which is uh, this concept of eternal rewards. So believers are going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ, and we will be rewarded based upon our good works. So good works matter for our future rewards. I've always wanted to do a sermon series on eternal rewards because I think it's a topic that people don't talk about very much. And there's a lot of, uh, you know, it's, people are unaware of this, of, of the all the New Testament passages about eternal rewards. I could probably, uh, I think I have 20 passages listed about eternal rewards. James talks about the crown of life. 1 Corinthians 3 talks about being rewarded. The book of Romans talks about the judgment seat of Christ and rewards being a part of that. So there is this concept that how we live right now matters for a believer. Not as far as entering heaven, but it matters for our uh, eternal rewards and maybe uh, some of our purposes and responsibilities in the future. Hebrews 9.27 says, it is destined for everybody to die once and then face a judgment. So the judgment, that word actually means a reckoning. Reckoning. Everybody's going to face that. But the issue is going to be, is it going to be at the great white throne or is it going to be at the judgment seat of Christ? One is pretty positive, the rewards part. One is not so positive. That's where your name is not written in the in the book of life, and you're going to be separated from God for uh, all eternity. So with this uh, question about about, um, what happens when I die, the other question that comes up with that is, what about my kids? What about children? And I face this right here in my office with parents who have lost a baby um, and, and you know, some tragedy like that. And it's very personal. It's very emotional. And often I try not to 
give dogmatic answers, but try to be assuring and so forth. Uh, it seems to me that 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 children will go into the presence of the Lord. So the question will be, well, how can they go in the presence of the Lord if they haven't believed in Christ? Because belief is the condition for salvation. So I would answer that and say, this is a tough one. There's lots of tension with that. But when King David's child, first child, died, he believed that the child would be in the presence of the Lord. In Isaiah chapter 9, I believe, it's um, he says that before the child knows the difference between right and wrong, King Ahab, your, your kingdom is going to go away. So it seems like he's saying that there's some sort of a that young children don't have the capacity to decide right from wrong. So from that, I would take it that children do not, you know, your two-year-old does not have the capacity to to choose or to believe. So I'm looking at the characteristics of God, what we call the attributes, that God is good, that God is loving, God is just as well. But it would seem to me that that there's heaven for those who can't believe and a child can't believe, nor can someone who has maybe, we would say, a mental illness or condition. And so I think we have to approach that with great sensitivity and compassion. But you see, it's still looking at the Bible to be able to say, what happens when that person dies? And I, my personal belief is that they go to be in the presence of God. And I'm not trying to give false hope to parents, but I do think that's what the Scripture points to when it comes to salvation for uh, children as well. So that's uh, that's my take on what happens uh, when we die. Well, I'm glad you're done, Steve, because it's about time for me to throw my opinions on the table. What's and, your opinion? <laughs> um, so since you were getting fancy, showing off your seminary knowledge, flexing those Greek translations, oh, those yeah. Latin oh. translations, you know what? I got a fun translation that... Maybe some people here who went to high school in the United States are aware of, and that is um, kind of going off of the idea of separation. Mm-hmm. Um, the word sin in Spanish, it's, it's pronounced sin, but it means without. And so I kind of think that's pretty interesting. So in one way, you can think of that as um, when we are in sin, we are without God or mm-hmm. just kind of the idea of that separation, but then also a fun way that um, I think about it is that Jesus um, was seen sin without sin. Oh, okay. <laughs> so you just double that word. But then, anyways, completely unrelated to that, another thing I was going to ask about, because I think there's probably people who are curious about this, is I'm pretty sure it's specifically in Catholicism, the idea of purgatory and then hierarchies or levels to heaven. And I was wondering what your take on both of those things was. Hey, I'm glad you asked that. So purgatory is the is part of Catholic theology where a person dies and they need to be purged of their sins in order to be in the presence of God. And the concept of purgatory first creeps up with Gregory the First. I'm glad you asked that. Actually, something I know about. So uh, Gregory the First in about 600 AD, and he pulls that from what we call vague references in the Apocrypha, not from what we would call canonical scripture. And over time, that began to be, a, you know, how um, in Catholicism you should pray for those in purgatory, you know, pray that they would be purged and, 
And then over time, it was uh, give more money to the church because you can release people out of purgatory by giving more money to the church. And so it was used as leverage to get your own way, which was not the original intent of Gregory the First or uh, the early Roman Catholicism belief in that. But it was eventually used for that. And so I don't see any evidence for that because the passages I mentioned, as soon as you die, you're going to be in the presence presence of the Lord. So as soon as you are justified, legally declared righteous, and you receive the imputed righteousness of Christ, you don't need to be purged anymore in that sense. So this levels of heaven thing, um, it seems like to me everybody has the same standing before Christ at the in the future in our resurrected bodies. Some people may have different rewards, but I don't think that's different necessarily different different levels of of heaven. So I'm not sure sometimes what people mean by that. And I think is it um is it a Pilgrim's progress where he talks about levels of hell and levels of heaven, I believe. And I think that's where some of that some of that thinking comes from. As well, but I don't think there are different levels of heaven in that respect at all. And purgatory comes from the from uh, the apocrypha, non-canonical books not found in the Bible. And 600 years later, no one believed in purgatory before 680. But Steve, I lived such a good life, and I gave to charity, and I volunteered at the homeless shelter, and I did these good things, and I helped my kids get through school. So doesn't that mean that? In heaven, I'm going to be above you because I did more good than you. Isn't isn't that how it works? I think if your motivation to doing those good things is to get ahead, then motives count as well. And but we, I don't know what those rewards will be, and it may mean that you live in a better mansion than I do in, in heaven. That uh, um, the applause from Jesus might be louder for those who take care of the poor and really give their heart to people, you know, something like that. But I don't think we're talking about you won the lottery and the other person didn't in heaven. Good works count, but our motives count too in mm-hmm. good works. I had somebody in my office the other day said, I re- finally realized I did all of my charity work so I would look good in the community. Well, wrong motives. And this person really finally recognized that. My motives were totally messed up when it came to doing good things. Good things don't get me into heaven. Good things count for something, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they count. They, we do it out of gratitude and the right motives, and we'll be rewarded in some way. It's unclear so then, what those things are, though. That, that makes me think specifically about um, groups or sects you could say, of Christianity or offsprings Mm -hmm. that kind of preach that idea of good works get you into heaven or the hierarchy idea that the more you do, the better it'll be for you later on. And that just makes me wonder, obviously your salvation is not based on those good Mm -hmm. works, but does God frown upon those people for trying to live that life? Because in a way that seems very similar to what the Pharisees were doing throughout scriptures, but for those people, maybe they don't think that they're not doing it for the publicity or for this personal gain, but Mm -hmm. they're doing it because they think that is the way. So are they necessarily frowned upon for that by the Lord? Do you think he looks 
down at that and I, thinks that it's less valuable than just doing it with a pure heart? Well, it seems like motives matter. So a pure heart is, I think, is important. I, I would say that 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 the motivation for doing good works uh, needs to be for the you know those need to be for the right reasons. Uh, and what was your question? That I guess kind of uh, the way. I, I worded it awkwardly because I was thinking mm-hmm. as I was going, but I guess the way I'm thinking of it is if you're doing good works because you believe that's your ticket to heaven and that's the way that you're approaching that, is that motivation unpure or is it kind of in the middle somewhere? I think, okay, I I would say this, that sometimes it's easy to mix faith and works. Hey, you need to be believe in Jesus plus... You need to do these things. It's the plus model. And the problem with that is we become legalists by it. I have to check all these things off, and it becomes very performance-based instead of heart-based. Did you did you read your Bible today? Check mark one. Did you have a did you pray today? Did you think about good things? Did you do some bad things? Negative check over here. You know, it's very legalistic in that sense. And I don't think it's very healthy for us spiritually. Our motivations need to come from out of gratitude. Hey, I'm so grateful that God saved me and redeemed my life that I just want to walk in his grace and forgiveness and give compassion to other people who were just like me. So I think the faith plus model, that's what I think about in the in the in what you just articulated. It's the faith plus model, faith in Jesus plus all this other stuff, and that just doesn't work. It's very confusing to people. And you always come back to the question, how much, how many good works do I need to do? It's never ending. It's like the goalposts are always 100 yards away. You just keep adding to it. Yeah. So that's what happens when we die. We go in the presence of God, and then in the future, we will be resurrected when Jesus returns. And I think we can take that to the bank as well. Well, this is Steve, and we've been talking about some really important stuff today, what happens when you die. Grace and peace to you.